invite you to turn in your Bible with me this morning to Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 1. Chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 18 through 20 this morning, but I'd like to begin reading to verse 16, and we're going to read through verse 25. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 And then we'll read through verse 25. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Father, we thank you that you are as you are and you are God who reveals these things so that we might be saved. And I pray, Lord, that you would work your salvation in our lives and our hearts today. Whether, Lord, we've been a Christian as long as we can remember, or Lord, whether we've never once come and bowed the knee to Christ, that this would be the day, Lord, where we experience the beauty of your, your love as you, as you rescue us from your wrath. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning, this morning we're going to be talking about um, a topic that the world really doesn't like to talk about, and, and, and increasingly more and more Christians uh, choose to ignore it as well. We we're going to talk about the wrath of God. And the, and the first thing I'd, I'd like to try to do is to set the table with what is the wrath of God like. Uh, when we think of wrath, we generally think of people who've lost control of their temper. Uh, they've just, they're flying off the handle. Um, they're, they're just um, been so moved by their emotion uh, that, that they're no longer rational and, they, and they're dangerous. They, they, can hurt, they can hurt people and things because they're just not thinking clearly. Well, there's uh, th- there's nothing like that in the wrath of God. We just need to, in our minds, draw a sharp line between what we experience human wrath to be and what God's wrath is like. God's wrath, there's nothing petulant about it. Uh, there's nothing self-serving or self-pitying about it. I was trying to think of an illustration that tried to give us maybe some sense, and the best I could come up with was the time uh, I was, well, I was nearly eaten by a bear. And um, and yes, I'm serious. Uh, we were, um, my wife and I were in Banff, uh, uh, Canada. Uh, if you've never been, I highly recommend it. Beautiful place. Just stay in your car. Uh, we were, 
We, uh, were, we took an early morning drive because I read that there's more wildlife in the early morning hours and less traffic, and so we did, and sure enough, there, were, there, was, uh, there was this beautiful grizzly bear off on the side of the road, and, and, uh, and, and I'm quite sure we had passed several signs that said, do not get out of your car, but I uh, thought to get, you know, just for the, the art of it, I needed to get out of the car so I could take a photo of this bear. So I walked around to the back of the car, and he's up there, and I'm... And, um, I don't know, here to that window, probably the second window away. Um, so I'm taking pictures, and I was very pleased, and uh, he's eating his berries, he seems happy. I, I, I stopped taking the pictures, I, I'm looking at the camera, I'm coming around the back side of the car, and by the time I got to the back, he was at the hood and coming around. Never heard him. So I took two quick steps, opened the door, uh, slid in, slammed the door, and his face was bam, up against the window, like this big. And he was not happy. Uh, there, was, there was poor intent in his eyes. <laughs> um, and it was, it, was an, it was an anger that was resolute and full of glorious strength. My plan, as you know, it's so silly, it's un- impossible to imagine. My plan was if the bear came, I would jump on top of the car. <clears throat> well, when he got there, I realized he was as big as the car. And uh, there was no way I would have escaped that thing. Um, But the anger in his eyes, right? He was enjoying his breakfast, and I messed it up. And uh, you're not, there was no resisting that anger. And it was, the the strength of it, the, 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 the splendor in a sense of it. That's what I'd like you to think about when you think about the wrath of God. It is, it is not God throwing things around. It is God's resolute, um, holy splendid determination to deal with the reality of evil and the reality of sin. People um, tend to dismiss the idea of the wrath of God, partly because they have a misconception of what it's about, partly because they just don't like the implications. But if we do away with the wrath of God, we also undermine the love of God. Um, We need to just hold the biblical truth that God is both a God of wrath and a God of love. Uh, He he reveals himself to be both, but but he's not both in the same way. Uh, The Bible says that God is love. It is an attribute of God. It's an essential part of his character. God has always been that way, and he always will be that way. He will always be love. But that's not the case with his wrath. There was a time when God was not did not experience wrath in 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 the blessedness of the Holy Trinity. A wrath is not an essential part of his being. It is his response to, his loving response to, the reality of sin and evil. It's a fruit of his love. Uh, And we need to talk about the wrath of God because, uh, well, God talks about it. Uh, God wants us to know what he is really like. And we need to talk about it because without it, we don't really understand the full richness of the love of God and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we, lose, we lose an understanding, for instance, of what the cross is about. I was reading an article this past week by Ryan, uh, Thomas Ryan in which he points out uh, how cheaply and shallowly so many Christians view the cross. He said uh, that it is common for contemporary Christians to, quote, view the cross as an eye-popping bear hug from God accompanied with a pat on the bottom to urge us to, score, uh, to, to move forward and score touchdowns for Jesus. In stark contrast, 
The biblical message is that God in his love poured out his wrath on his son. Jesus in his love bore God's wrath that our sin deserved and that on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The gospel is not a sentimental message of God's fawning affection for struggling people. It is a stunning news of God's infinite love by which, in which he rescued us from his own holy wrath through the death of his son who bore our sin on the cross. That's the gospel that Paul is eager to preach. That's the gospel of which he's not ashamed. This morning, we're going to begin a new section. We're beginning a new section in the letter, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. It's beginning in verse 18 and going all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. You could call it the sin section. It's a section where Paul answers the question, why is salvation by faith alone necessary? Or I could say it this way, why is it necessary that we be saved by faith? Because Paul has just said, verse 17, that, that the salvation of God is revealed from faith to faith. That it is not acquired by human effort. It can only be received in the act of faith. And, and of course, the world will say, well, why is that the case? Why does it have to be that way? Why, why isn't there something that we can do to, to rectify right, the situation, to make ourselves right with God? Why, why wouldn't it be sufficient if we offer sacrifices, even really, really significant sacrifices, like, like uh, offering our firstborn in the, in the rivers of India? Why wouldn't that work? Or why couldn't we just do our very best and be moral people, clean up our act? Surely there, there must be something that we could do to even the scales and make ourselves right with God. Uh, why is it that uh, the Christians insist that salvation only comes by faith alone and faith in Christ alone? That, that it is not something that can be acquired by human merit or effort, but can only be received as a gift with the outstretched hand of faith. Why is that necessarily the case? And, and Paul says, well, the reason it's necessarily the case is because of the nature of human sin and the nature of God himself. Specifically, God's just and holy response to sin in his wrath. You see, it's essential that we correctly understand the disease in order for us to appreciate the cure. A false diagnosis of the problem will, need, will lead inevitably uh, to useless remedies and no cures. Uh, boys and girls, just imagine that you were playing in the backyard and you fell off the swing and you broke your leg and it was really bad. There was even a piece of bone sticking out. It's just ugly. And you managed to make your way in the house and, and your, your mom looked at it and said, oh, that looks painful. Let me get a Band-Aid. Uh, boys and girls, is it, would a Band-Aid work for a broken leg where the piece of the bone's coming out? No. Band-Aid's not going to fix it. She has to understand the problem, the real problem, that bone needs to be set. Well, there are many, many people, you see, well, the world's covered with, with, with people like us who by nature try to put, put Band-Aids on devastating brokenness. Every human religion is a Band-Aid. An attempt to fix the problem without understanding the problem. So Paul is going to help us see in these verses the necessity of a gospel and a salvation 
that is received by faith alone. We're going to look, first of all, at the revelation of God's wrath, and then secondly, the reason for God's wrath, and then third, the rescue from wrath. First, the revelation. Paul talks about the wrath of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. As I said, God's wrath is His necessary response of His holy, loving being to sin and, and evil. Being who He is, a God who is love, He can't help but respond in wrath towards things that desecrate His name and desecrate the world that He's made. This is not hard to illustrate. What, what loving parent, right, if you love your little girl, would not experience wrath towards the man who intends to kidnap her and molest her? There's going to be a holy indignation in your soul about that. And any other response, any casual, apathetic response to that reality would be unnatural and profoundly unloving and evil in its own right. You would look at that parent and say, that person should not be a parent. That's profoundly evil. So Rebecca Pippert says this, uh, God's wrath is no cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. To ask God to simply dismiss his wrath is to ask him to stop being God and to become like the devil himself. Douglas Moo writes, as long as God is God, he cannot behold with indifference that his creation is destroyed and his holy will trodden underfoot. Therefore, he meets sin with his mighty and annihilating reaction. And we should say, praise God, that God is so resolutely opposed to all that is, that all that is evil and, that, and has de is determined to destroy it. It's the response of his love. Paul says that that wrath is being revealed from heaven. Uh, we tend to associate the wrath of God with, with judgment on the last day, and that certainly will be the case, but Paul wants us to think about present tense, that God's wrath is being revealed today. It's an ongoing action. And we're going to see as we go through the, uh, Paul's letter three different ways the wrath of God is being revealed today. Things that you could look at and say, that the reason that's happening, the reason that's there, is because God is responding to the evil of this world in His holy, righteous, loving character. The three ways would be, first of all, death in Romans 5. Paul says in verse 12, chapter 5, 12, sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Uh, death is God's response to man's sin. It's God revealing His wrath. Every time you drive by a cemetery, it should be a reminder to you, something is profoundly not right between the God who made this world and the world of mankind. Something's gone desperately wrong. In chapter 820, we see that futility is God revealing His wrath as, as He subjected creation to futility in hope that the creation itself would be redeemed from its bondage to decay. And, and what does that futility look like? Well, it, it, it just looks like things not working, things breaking down, plans uh, just being blown up by the, by the, the most awful things. You, um, futility looks like you have a day where absolutely nothing goes right. 
Nothing works. Nothing goes as it ought to go. How often haven't you heard about a, a couple who's spent their life raising their family and, and, and working hard and putting some money away and making dreams about what they're going to do when they retire, and they've got it all planned out, and then two weeks after the, the man retires, he suffers a heart attack or the wife is diagnosed with cancer, and all the plans go out the window. It happens over and over, and, and that, that's just one little example. You, we've all experienced the reality of futility and, and, and in frustration, just said, why does it have to be this way? Why doesn't it work? Why doesn't my marriage work? Why doesn't my family work? Why doesn't my work work? Because that's God revealing that something's wrong, revealing His wrath. Well, here in chapter 1, He's going to point to another revelation of God's wrath, a surprising one. We wouldn't naturally think of it. And Paul's going to show us that God uh, is revealing His wrath by giving people over to their sin. You see that in, in verse 24, therefore God gave them up, therefore, you see, because they, re they reject the truth of God, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. People would never imagine that this is the case. They, they, they think that they are just freely uh, rebelling, freely following their own desires, uh, freely determining their own path, making up their own rules. And the fact is, their flight into degeneracy is God at work. God revealing His wrath. You want a, a picture of the wrath of God being revealed? Just look at our culture. These things are not happening by accident. God is talking today. He's revealing wrath. Lord willing, we'll look into that more next week. The question we want to ask is towards whom or what is God's wrath being directed? And Paul tells us that it's directed against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men. It's against all the ungodliness and wickedness of men. I'm, I'm sure you've heard the saying that God loves, uh, hates the sin but loves the sinner. God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And people say that um, as though it were a biblical truth. It's, of course, not from the Bible. It's from, it's from Gandhi. And though it has some element of truth, it confuses the deeper truth. Because God is not angry with sin in some generic, general sense. He's, he's not just opposed to injustice or crime or lust or greed. Paul says that he's, he's expressing and revealing his wrath against the ungodliness and wickedness of men, of people. Sin doesn't exist in the abstract sense. Sin is... is uh, the direct product of rebellious human hearts. And so the wrath of God is not directed towards only the act, but towards the actor, the person who commits the sin. Sinful people are the objects of God's wrath. Sinful people are the objects of God's wrath. Boys and girls, you understand this very well if you have loving parents at home uh, and they they catch you doing something really awful. Um, they don't punish the awful thing you did. They, they punish you because you're the one who committed it. Well, it's, it's the same in God's kingdom, God's house. Uh, God's wrath is revealed towards the people who commit the sin. But here again is where the glory of the gospel shines because the, the, the wonder of the gospel is that God sets his saving affection and love 
upon those who are justly objects of his wrath. That God's love and wrath in the, in the gospel, we see that, that God loves those who are under his wrath. So the gospel is that God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were under the wrath of God, you see, the wonder of the gospel is he doesn't leave us there. But he moves towards people who are under his wrath to rescue them from his wrath by sending his very own son, God himself, to be a sin bearer, a wrath bearer. And that Jesus, by his his death, satisfies the justice of God, thus removing the wrath of God. And so the what remains then is that in this world today, there are only two ways of relating to God, or two, there are two, two categories you can be in before God. Uh, you can stand before God either under His wrath or under the gospel. You can, you can stand before God still in your sin or in Christ, and those are the only two possible categories that you can be in. There's not another one. So uh, one commentator says, whatever is under heaven and, yet, and not yet under the gospel is under wrath. Whatever is under heaven and not yet under the gospel is under his wrath. And he's not making that up. Listen to what Jesus says in John three thirty six: Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's present, it's there, it remains for as long as they stay outside of Christ, for as long as they do not believe in the Son. Those are the two categories. That's the reality of God's wrath being revealed. Now, what is the reason for God's wrath? Paul will tell us about that as he lays out the charge against mankind. Verse 19, for whatever can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So Paul's going to talk about this universal revelation. Um, God has clearly manifested, revealed himself. And we're going to ask investigative questions. Uh, When did he do that? Um, Just when, what, where, and how? Those are the questions we're going to ask. When, what, where, and how? When has God revealed himself to man? And, And Paul says, since the creation of the world. There was never a moment in time where man lived without the revelation of God. There's never a moment in time where he said, well, you didn't tell me that. Right? We we like to try to do those things with people who are in authority, and and they maybe admonish or rebuke us. We'll say, you didn't didn't say anything about that. I didn't know that was a rule. I didn't know that was a thing. Well, ever since the creation of the world, we've known um, the truth about God. Uh, well, and and uh, what is he revealed specifically? Paul tells us his eternal power and divine nature. So, so creation is, is screaming at you. There's a God. And he's divine. He's not like the creation. He's not a product of creation. He's not a product of the human mind. He exists outside of and he made all of this. There is a God. And he, is, he has eternal power. I mean, you just look at the world around you, you notice the power that forms mountains and hurricanes and galaxies. Maybe you saw the pictures out this week uh, from the new Webb telescope of the pillars of creation. These incredible, vast uh, things far out in space, five light years long. That's the power of God. God's revealed himself. 
to man, his eternal power and divine nature, and, and he's revealed, as I said, where? In creation itself. This universe is one continuous, unbroken testimony to the glory of God, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, night after night, and there's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Creation bears the marks of its creator. It's God's work of art, and, and it bears the distinguishing mark of its maker. Well, how legible is it? Uh, maybe you've received some instruction, and it was just written so poorly you couldn't really make it out. That would be an excuse. Uh, yeah, you gave me the note. I saw it, but I couldn't read it. It wasn't legible. How legible is is this revelation of God. Paul says it's manifestly clear. What may be known about God is plain to them. It's clear to them because God has shown it to them. God doesn't mutter. He doesn't stumble over his words. He's, he's, he's been very clear in his revelation. So, so why, don't we, why don't people see it? Why, do, why don't people see it and respond in worship and obedience? Well, the answer is because there's been a universal revelation, but it's been followed by a universal rejection. Paul says that uh, people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, his invil invisible uh, attributes have been clearly seen, and yet people suppress the truth. Uh, they, they, um, they know the truth, there's a debate about should this word be suppresses the truth or holds the truth in unrighteousness. Either way, I think you need to, we need to understand that, that people have the truth, they know the truth, but they reject the truth. They deny the truth. One of the clearest evidences of that is just seen in the scientific world. You would think that scientists should be the most godly, committed Christians in all the world. Because they're studying God's revelation in creation. They should be ones leading the charge. Wake up, people. This did not happen by accident. William Dembski in his book, The Design, uh, the Design Inference, quotes, uh, just shows how evolutionary scientists, they see the evidence of design, they see the evidence of a creator, and yet in, insist on rejecting the implications of that. For instance, Richard Dawkins uh, writes, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. And this from Francis Crick. Bio biologists must continually keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. Now, why would you need to keep that in mind? Because everything you're looking at is screaming to you, I've been created. This is creation. There is a creator. So why would, they, why would they resist that message? Well, because they're afraid of the, the truth of it. They're, if there's actually a God, that changes everything. It, it, it means that they're not self-determinative. It means they're not their own boss. It means that they owe this God thanks and honor and worship. They're obliged to, to acknowledge Him, worship Him, and that they'll be held accountable to Him. None of those things uh, sound like good news to a fallen sinful man. And so we just reject it. Keep in mind, as you look at God's revelation in creation, um, it just evolved. Just blind yourself. Now, of course, that trait isn't shared just by evolutionary scientists. We all share that natural-born trait. John Piper says, every one of us is a spin doctor by nature. 
Every one of us is spring-loaded to put his own failing in the best light and the failing of his adversaries in the worst light. We soften our sins with mild words, and when the truth hunts us down and corners us, we will dodge and distort and evade and mislead and equivocate and lie. And when that doesn't work to suppress the truth, we will shift to blaming and accusing and deflecting anything to hold down the truth from having its full impact in our life. And we do it all the time. We know the truth. We know the truth about God. We know the truth about ourselves. But we, we find ourselves rejecting it. Going our own way. It's our human sinful bent. And so every man and woman does this. As Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, they perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. That's the problem with mankind. We know the truth. We just don't love the truth. And why don't we love the truth, Paul says, because we delight in wickedness in 2 Thessalonians 2. That's the problem. That's the bent. That's the crisis of mankind. We know the truth. You can have that that confidence whenever you're uh, evangelizing someone. They know the truth. They know there's a God. They're working desperately to suppress it. Which means, you see, that unbelief is not primarily an intellectual problem. It's primarily a moral one. The fundamental problem is that, is that people have the truth of God, but they, they refuse to accept the implications or, or, or to receive that truth. There's a knee-jerk reaction against that truth. And so we reject it because we like our sin. We like the delusions of independence and autonomy. And we're stuck there. But that means that we're also without excuse. There's a universal responsibility so that men are without excuse. You don't really have to explain this, do you? I mean, the, it's blatantly obvious that men are without excuse. If, if the evidence is clearly revealed to them, it's every day screaming at them. Both the evidence of God's goodness in creation and the evidence of, of God's wrath being revealed. Everyone drives by cemeteries. Everyone goes to funerals. Everyone senses the futility of this world. Everyone senses that the, the, the power within them towards degradation. We all experience those things. God's talking both in the language of blessing and beauty and in the language of revealing his wrath. And and so we're without excuse. We're without excuse. He's justly angry. He's revealed himself and we refuse to to receive it. What are you going to say to God on the last day? How how, how are we going to justify ourselves? When every single moment of our life we we spent in the the middle of God's self-revelation. And we refuse to acknowledge him. Where are you going to hide? If you're here this morning and you're hoping that somehow it's going to be okay. See, this is why we need the gospel. This is why we need to be rescued from wrath. This is is the beauty of the gospel that God has rescued us from his wrath in Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible, just quickly go to chapter 3, verse uh, 23. As Paul now is going to move into the explanation of the gospel after just explaining that all have sinned and fallen short, no one, is, no one is righteous, and no one's going to make themselves righteous by the law, but in verse 23, he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is exactly Jesus 
removing the wrath of God. Jesus deflecting the wrath of God or, or, and, and doing that by receiving it. So that the wrath of propitiation is, is a response, uh, an answer to wrath. It's, it's Jesus taking the wrath uh, that we deserve for our sin on himself, suffering that wrath as he pays the penalty of God's holy law. And in that, you and I are rescued. You and I are delivered from wrath. So that if we believe in Jesus Christ, there's no more wrath left. One of the things that Christians need to get in our minds, there's no more wrath ever for a child of God. Never for a child of God. That God will discipline you in love. He will chastise you because he delights in you. But he will never ever lash out at you. He will never in judicial righteousness punish you. You're never going to stare in the face like I looked into the eyes of that bear and you see anger there. Ever. Not, not, not destructive anger, not judicial anger. That anger has been placed on Jesus Christ. And every revelation of wrath that we do receive in this life instead has been, it's been overturned. It's been, it's been changed dramatically. So, so even death, we still die, but, but death is not a revelation of God's wrath against us. The Bible says that death has lost its sting. Death becomes a servant of God's children to usher us into the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an enemy still to be faced, but it's a conquered enemy. And the same for futility. Do you realize that if you are a Christian, if you're a child of God, there is no more futility in your life. Yes, things don't work and things break down. You're going to stub your toe on your way out the door this morning. But it, there's no futility in it. Why not? Because Paul says all things, Romans 8, 28, work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. That God has ripped futility out of your life. And that whatever you're facing, as we trust in the Lord, as we lean on him, everything that we experience in life is instead bearing fruit Fruit for the glory of God, fruit of righteousness in our own life. That's Hebrews chapter 12. There's no more futility. If you, if you feel like it's just all futile, no, it's not. Not if you're in Christ. And even sin itself. Yes, we still sin, and, and there's, that, there's that, that lure towards degradation, and yet you know if you're a Christian that there's a battle going on inside of you, the Holy Spirit waging war with your flesh, and you know that that battle is going to end well because Jesus conquered your sin. And our flesh was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in Psalm 103, verse 12, that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And so all the wrath is gone for, for a child of God, for a Christian, never ever to return. And that, friends, is why we love the gospel. That's why we receive this gospel. This wonderful good news that God loved us in Jesus Christ and God turned away his wrath in Jesus Christ so that we could walk freely into the arms of God by his initiative, by his will, by his doing. And my friend, my question just as I close this morning, it would be, do you know that God? Do you know him that way? Because as I said, you either stand in grace and in Christ or you stand under the wrath of God. 
And the reason God wants us to know about his wrath is so that we might flee for refuge to Jesus Christ. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, including you. And so if you've never, if you've never done that, I plead with you, do it today. Don't wait. Do it today. The gospel is rich and beautiful and true and able to save sinners like us and like you. Let's pray. Oh, God in heaven, I thank you for the glory of your being. I thank you, Father, that you are not a God to be trifled with. There's a holy splendor about your response to evil, and we rejoice in it, that you are not casual, you're not apathetic in your response towards sin. Because of your holy love for your own name and for the world that you've made and for those made in your image. And yet, Father, that, that holy, loving wrath would destroy us were it not for Christ. For you are a consuming fire for all that is evil. And so we thank you, O oh God. We thank you profoundly for rescuing us by punishing your Son. And we thank you, Lord, that, that by faith in Jesus Christ, we are now united to him and, and that there's no more futility left. There's no more wrath left for us. And, and even death itself has lost its sting and, and sin is a defeated foe. And so, God, I just pray that you would teach us to live then uh, in this world, your world, receiving your love and your favor and your blessing and your kindness, even, Lord, your loving discipline. For, oh God, that is what you've accomplished for us in Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would, we would have the joy of seeing loved ones who don't know Jesus Christ and neighbors and the community around us, Lord, come and, and find life and rescue and refuge in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And may you be glorified in all of it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to respond by singing about that refuge that we have in Jesus Christ, rock of ages cleft for me. Let's stand together and sing.
This past Wednesday, we studied the attributes of God in high school theology class, and I began the class by asking, is God a happy God? Is God a happy God? And is God happy with you? And the answer was uh, no. And uh, I had the joy of telling them all they were wrong. God is a blessed God. He's a happy God. And in his, uh, he is delighted with the work of his hands and what he is accomplishing in Jesus Christ in your life. And so we've studied the wrath of God, but I hope you heard it's, it's response of his love and that now in Jesus Christ, love is all that there's left. And so now as you go, go with the blessing of your joyful God who delights in you, in Christ. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Thank you.